Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Filmmaking is a multi-billion dollar revenue source in our state. The Georgia Film Academy is trying to help the industry with its COVID-19 compliance course. We'll learn more about that topic later in the hour. Blood on Her Name was filmed here in Georgia and featured acclaimed Atlanta-based actor Bethany Ann Lind. She'll tell us about the thriller alongside director Matthew Pope. First, a Grammy-winning soul singer receives another honor. William Bell has been named a 2020 Heritage Fellow by the National Endowment for the Arts. Bell got his start as a recording artist with Stax Records in the early 1960s. His reputation grew and his career continued with numerous hits through the decades. Bell won a Grammy Award in 2017 for Best Americana Album with his recording, This Is Where I Live. When producer Stephen Key spoke with William Bell about his career, he asked Bell to discuss the impact of his music. Well, we didn't realize that. Uh, we were just uh, neighborhood kids at the time, and we didn't really realize what the impact that we would have. But it's just amazing our creation have lasted through generations and and been accepted around the world. So we're very pleased with that particular outcome. Now, after You Don't Miss Your Water, shortly into your original recordings with Stax, you were uh, drafted to serve in the Army. Uh, but when you came back, you picked up right where you left off releasing your first full-length album, The Soul of a Bell. Uh, do you feel like that time away even though it was an unintended break, was beneficial to yourself? Well, as far as uh, creativity, not really because I spent most of the time overseas. <laughs> so I didn't hear what was going on uh, in, in terms of American music. But I was fortunate that uh, Stax uh, 
picked up my uh, contract retroactive when I got, got back and uh, they were still high on me. And even though they had the Otis's and the Sam and Dave's and Rufus's and all those people there then, I had to really kind of reorient myself when I got back. So I took a couple of months and just asked Jim Stewart if I could just uh, glue my ears to the radio and find out what was happening musically. And uh, he was uh, gracious enough to let me do that. And uh, so when I started back to recording, of course, my first major hit uh, was uh, Everybody Loves a Winner. Let's talk about your album, This Is Where I Live. It won a Grammy in 2017 for Best Americana Album, and it's a, it's a brilliant piece of work. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how that project came together? Yes. Um, my management put me in touch with John Leventhal, and John was a fan, and he, he uh, so he knew all of my prior works, and when we met we just kind of hit it off he came to my studio in atlanta first and we just kind of picked each other's brain and talked and then uh, he invited me to new york to his studio and i felt very very comfortable working with him because it reminded me a lot of uh the, how we worked at stacks uh and i worked with booker uh because we weren't necessarily on the clock and uh, I like to work that way. I don't like the pressure of having three hours to record a song or something. So we just worked on it until we were satisfied. So we were able to sit and just uh, rework and create the song that we wanted to. And basically we wanted to kind of retain some of the stacks element, but not dwell and try to reinvent the wheel. We wanted good melodic structure and good lyrical content and that's what we really focused on and and uh, we came up with a winner la, 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 la. Yeah. i was born in memphis in a different world now that time has come and gone i was just a little boy when i heard sam cook singing a change is gonna come It touched my soul And let me know There's a promise of a brand new day Then I left my home Started out on my own This is where I live Well, uh, you've written some incredible songs throughout your career, just to name a few, uh, Private Number, Everybody Loves a Winner, I Forgot to Be Your Lover, of course, uh, Born Under a Bad Sign. But um, one song off of the album we were just talking about, This Is Where I Live, stood out to me. It seemed like a, a different approach almost uh, to your songwriting, The Three of Me, almost like a split personality 
uh, is the s- subject of the song. Could you talk about that track in particular? We were working on some some material, and John's uh, good buddy uh, had a, an idea of uh, a song, and he only had the first couple of lines, and he didn't have just a set in stone melody or anything. So, but he uh, called the studio one day and uh, talked to John Leventhal and, and gave him this idea and told me about the idea. And it just intrigued me about uh, the three of me. So we sat for probably a couple of hours just kicking it around. So after a while, John picked up his guitar and, and, and started playing and it just kind of gelled and my, the lyrical content and everything just kind of gelled uh, instantly and of course we recorded it last night I had a dream and there were three of me There was the man I was, the man I am, and the man I want to be. It's not that easy to forget all the love. And looking back on the man I was. So it sounds like s- some tracks just come together in a, in a natural way, like you mentioned with The Three of Me. Can you think of other songs that, that you had that were hits that you had to fight for, you had to get in there and, and work on and hammer out to make them right? Or are the good ones more effortless? Well, some some songs when you're writing, they just flow uh some we take uh more time with and there have been times when we on this particular album i would go back to the hotel at night and uh, listen to what we had done during the day and just totally rework it (laughs) and come back the next day and and uh so John, I want to try one more time for this or change. I've changed the verse or uh, switched the verses around or whatever. But we had that luxury uh, because, uh, you know, we weren't on the clock. Well, you just mentioned how the process of making that song was more collaborative and um, wasn't just localized, which makes me think about back when you were recording with Stax, there was such a scene with the Stax label itself that had such its own sound. And then you had other recording studios that had their own sound. I'm thinking of Muscle Shoals and Motown. And back then, so much of the sound depended upon the studio and the relationship between the different house bands and the artists. What's it like for you now recording and being able to jump online and and collaborate with somebody in New York effortlessly from Atlanta or vice versa? Well, I have the luxury of having a studio of my own here so I can work up the ideas and 
uh, almost get them to completion, just bouncing ideas off of another person and seeing what that take is on an idea. Uh, I think it makes for a better product. And John, he's such an amazing, uh, intuitive musician. And I hadn't had that particular kind of input since working with Booker, but John was a big fan of mine. And uh, so uh, he pretty much knew where my vocal range was and uh, my structure of lyric and, and, and content and stuff. So. Uh, it was just a joy to have that luxury of just, if you didn't like the bass line, you could come in the next day and change it, or you didn't like a, a passage on the piano, you could change. And I think by being able to dissect a song in that fashion, it makes for a better song because you have time to really step back. It's like being a, a, a portrait painter or something. You have time to step back, listen to it, evaluate it, and see if that's really what you're trying to put across in, in terms of the idea of the song. I wanted to ask you about this latest honor that you have received as honored as a folk and traditional artist. And then your your latest album won a Grammy in the category of Americana. Uh, do you think that there's going to come a time in the future when hip hop albums could be hopefully winning Grammys in the category of Americana or be considered folk music? I feel like those are genres that typically uh, people think of white artists, country music per se, um, but really, when you think about it, there's nothing more inherent to the fabric of the American South and its music as, as soul. Right. Uh, I think so, I, because it's a, it's, it's a very viable uh, genre. And, and, and this is the music of today, the hip hop music and the rap. Uh, they're telling the same story. We realized that on the Take Me to the River tour when we were dealing and, and working with Snoop and different people or some of the rappers. Uh, we're telling the same story, a different generation. Uh, it's about life and, and hip hop and rap, that's a lifestyle. It's, 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 it's more than just a musical entity now. It's a lifestyle and I think they are way ahead of the curve, but uh, we'll catch up to them and they will win some of the the accolades that uh, the other genres are doing and uh, rightly so because uh, uh, when you listen to some of the, the uh, flow and some of the lyrics lyrical content and everything it's right on point with uh, things that are happening in the world now now you mentioned the take me to the river project and working with snoop did you have a chance to work with memphis legends three six mafia as well Oh yeah, uh, Frazier Boy and Al Capone and all those guys. And they uh, were around and I had a lot of stuff cut by Kanye and, and Ludacris and the guys from Atlanta here. So uh, it, it, it's just uh, when I started working across in genres, like I said, I realized I, I got an education as well as they were getting an education. Frazier Boy came up after one of the tours and he said, I'll never work with tracks again because 
he worked with live bands for the first time and just the energy level and being able to to uh, express yourself with the audience have the time to do that when you're doing it live with a band as opposed to working with the track it just was a, <laughs> a revelation to him i came up working with live musicians and that's i'm old school that's what i do but when he said that it just struck me that uh, yeah he's getting it now he's seeing the energy and feeling that energy that that extra thing that you get when you've got that live thing behind you. So it was good. Uh, like I said, we, we both learned on both sides a lot of things about each other. I'd like to ask you a little bit about when you moved to Atlanta and uh, hooked up with Henry Wynn to start the Peachtree label. Was that 1969? Uh, actually, I came to Atlanta. I was doing concerts and stuff in and out of Atlanta. And so I was coming here when I, uh, in 69 is when he uh, started managing me, shifted uh, for about two years. So I bounced back and forth because I didn't want to sell my home in Memphis. And I wanted to keep one here. So later on, I just sold a home in Memphis and just brought everything here and started the studio. And uh, Henry and I had started the Peachtree record label. And so I needed to be here and spend more time here. So uh, I was doing all of the uh, creative things and he was doing all of the business aspects of uh, un until he passed. And then I had both things on me. Uh, but uh, we were successful. We had Mitty Collier and James Fountain and, and all of those people uh, that uh, we were lucky enough to Johnny Jones, who, uh, with Jimi Hendrix roommate in Nashville for a long time. So we had some hits and uh, they were on tour a lot. Henry was basically, he owned the Royal Peacock here uh, for years. And the Royal Peacock was a legendary venue on Auburn Avenue that had, if, if you were anybody, when you came to Atlanta, you played the Royal Peacock. Oh yeah. And uh, my first meeting of Henry was playing the Royal Peacock, me and Collar, no, me and Dion Warwick played it first, and then Collar and I came back, played it. That was the place to be. It was uh, it was like the Copa in New York, and you had the Royal Peacock in Atlanta. And if you played there, you knew you had made it. Um, so I met Henry uh, while playing there, and um, of course, um, we just kind of hit it off. Um, it took about another year for him to start managing me, but we did uh, establish a friendship. He was a promoter, a tour promoter, and he would compare the Motown acts with the Chicago acts. And so I did two or three major tours with Henry before he signed me on as manager. And um, he would mix us with the... Uh, uh, the, a lot of the, the miracles and smoking the miracles, he'd mix us up with the temptations and and then go to Chicago and we had Jerry Butler and the Curtis Mayfield tours. So we were all mixed up, but we, it was a good thing because we were getting to meet the other artists and establish uh, friendships and connections and everything. and And then just really getting to 
work among different uh, artists because most of us were from the South. Uh, most of Motown's acts, they were born in the South and moved to Detroit. Uh, of course, Memphis, uh, you know, as we were from the South and uh, from Mississippi, Arkansas and different places. And even Chicago, a lot of the artists from Chicago was born in Mississippi and Tennessee and Alabama. So uh, it was just a, a common thing for us to get together and all coming out of church mostly uh, and work together. And, and, uh, and we had fun on the tours and everything. Those were some of the best times. We didn't realize it at the time because we worked 45 to 90 days at a time on tours. It was just a fun time to be coming up and coming along and, 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 and uh, being able to work and, and meet your fan base and different artists. What is it like for you personally uh, witnessing all that's happening in Atlanta right now and uh, in the country and around the world as, as far as uh, a movement for equality and understanding uh, having gone through so much in your life and being a part of music that really was a soundtrack to a different generation of social justice. Oh, yeah. I, I was telling uh, someone the other day, when you've lived through this, I feel like deja vu. <laughs> I lived through this back in the uh, 50s and 60s and some of the 70s. And uh, it's just... Uh, unfortunate today we're still dealing with uh, the prejudices and, and the inequality and brutality and all of that stuff now. I think this country as a whole can do better. I, I know the people can do better, but we're going to have to be open and honest and sit down and talk to one another and just uh, cut through the chase and go right to what we can do to make this world a better place for everybody to live in because, yeah, black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter. Uh, animal life, everything, it matters. And we have to protect Mother Earth. Uh, we've got to find a way to uh, live on this planet because we're all in the same boat. Mr. Bell, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. And uh, it was an honor to speak to you. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Atlanta-based soul singer William Bell has been named a 2020 Heritage Fellow by the National Endowment for the Arts. In a moment, We'll hear how one organization has addressed safety concerns for Georgia's film industry. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Georgians can take pride in the number of films made in this state, as well as the number of jobs provided by that industry. As with so many businesses shuttered due to the global pandemic, our state's normally booming film industry has been on hold. The Georgia Film Academy is trying to help the industry with their latest COVID compliance course. Jeffrey Stepikoff is the executive director and when he joined us via Zoom earlier this week, he began by explaining the work and purpose of the Georgia Film Academy. Film of Georgia is really a remarkable story. Um, before the COVID crisis, the growth that we've seen here, I mean, has really been unprecedented. And this is really happening because we have a world-class uh, film tax credit, a film incentive. We have world-class infrastructure. You know, there's over 100 sound stages here in Georgia. And back in 2013, 2014, as we've seen this explosive growth take place in terms of film production, there were questions about whether or not we had enough Georgians to actually do all this work here in the state. So in 2015, the Georgia Film Academy was created. Now, instead of creating, say, uh, a film school, which would take years and indeed decades to actually put into motion, the state did something really innovative, which is to create this workforce program using the existing resources of the entire university system of Georgia and the entire technical college system of Georgia. So again, these are the systems of the state higher education system that I'm talking about. We started the program in the fall of 2015. We started our classes in the spring of 2016. We had 194 students, Georgians, in the initial classes, and we had three partner institutions, two University System of Georgia institutions and one Technical College System of Georgia institution. Today, we have over 25 partner institutions. We're also working with private schools. We have had over 7,000 registrations at the Georgia Film Academy. It's really been remarkable. Uh, in short, we provide world-class professional hands-on training, what you need to know to be of value to productions, and we provide access to industry, internships. We've had nearly a thousand students in union covered craft internships, and we're putting these students directly into the workforce. So again, the Georgia Film Academy is really one of the drivers behind this incredible growth that we've seen here in Georgia's industry. You have been in various aspects of the film industry for some 30 years the creative aspects, as well as the business and production ends. What has it meant for filmmaking and 
current productions in Georgia since the pandemic hit? Of course, the COVID crisis um, has been a challenge to the film industry globally. And here in Georgia, we have wanted to make sure that when the crisis abates, we are ready to go back into production full swing. Now, it's been really interesting, partly because many people around the world have been home watching content, right? We've all been watching great television shows, great motion pictures coming to us on streaming media. And what this has done is created incredible demand for product, really unprecedented demand for film and television production. So the Film Academy has been hard at work to make sure that our state is ready to go back into production and that indeed we have workforce to support all of the productions that we believe will soon be coming to the state. In June, when the governor announced plans to reopen the industry as a means to help jumpstart the state's economy, how did the Georgia Film Academy respond? Well, the Georgia Film Academy, really as early as last February, began creating our courses in an online format. So as soon as the university system pivoted to an environment where um, we were teaching our classes online, the Film Academy was ready to go and do just that. So as we're going now to move into an environment this fall where we are teaching our classes uh, in person again, Film Academy has these online courses in our back pocket that we can use in any capacity, whether it's teaching students in uh, rural Georgia or even even teaching students anywhere in the world who may be interested in what we're doing here in Georgia. We have these online classes. We have this online Film Academy that we're very excited about. In addition, we've used our resources, our contacts with the labor unions, our contacts with leadership, Department of Public Health and CDC, our relationships with the entire global production industry to make sure that we are capable and able to put together a program which trains production crews to work in a safe environment. And we've done just that. It's called the Georgia Film Academy COVID Compliance Course. What does it cover? So the Georgia Film Academy, Triple C as we call it, the COVID Compliance Course, initially covers the fundamentals in safety and sanitation protocols. So last week we launched the first part of the Georgia Film Academy COVID compliance course, the general prevention piece, which covers the basics that you need to know to work on set and to work uh, on a sound stage in, in a safe fashion. It's everything from uh, social distancing, hand washing, the, the, the fundamentals, but how this applies to the unique environment of a soundstage and a set. Now, next week, we're gonna to begin to launch craft-specific course segments. So the various trades that our technicians work in our soundstages and sets will start to be covered. I'm talking about grip, electric, craft services, lighting. These are really important courses, Lois. What's really also exciting about these classes is that they can be taken online, delivered anywhere in the world, and they are free to any production company, any crew member who is considering working here in Georgia. 
what is required of film union workers to complete before returning to the studios and sets? So to be clear, the various trade unions, IATSE, DGA, SAG, AFTRA, the Teamsters, they've all been working together on their various protocols and procedures. And in fact, back in June, um, this organization, this collaboration of all the various trade unions put together the Safe Way Forward document, which is a 36-page white paper that outlines the safety guidelines. So the Georgia Film Academy is looking at these guidelines, of course, taking them into consideration. But the Georgia Film Academy COVID compliance course is its own supplemental program, which can be used by any member of the unions, again, any uh, craft service member, anybody who is interested in working on a soundstage or set can take the Georgia Film Academy COVID compliance course. I'm hoping you can provide some clarity. Georgia is a right to work state. Of course, the production, the film production brings in union workers. So where do you draw the line with compliance and for whom? Perhaps I could be clear this way. The unions make their own determinations about safety and sanitation compliance. The Georgia Film Academy is simply providing guidance, knowledge, and education. We are not uh, an organization that gets involved in compliance. We are simply an organization that gets involved in education. That said, we are very proud to work with our partners at the unions, at the film office, as well as in the education organizations here. Okay. How has the pandemic changed the way film companies will approach future productions? That is a very good question, Lois. <laughs> and that is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. You know, again, I want to emphasize what an important time this is for the entertainment industry, and specifically for Georgia. And I say this as well uh, as someone who has been a television writer-producer most of his adult life. What an amazing time to watch television. What an amazing time to watch feature-length productions coming into our homes. I think part of the legacy of this event will be the grand demand for content, the grand demand for storytelling that is really being created right now. So how do I think the pandemic will ultimately affect this industry? I think we're gonna see even more demand for film and television production. How does that help Georgia? Because when it comes to producing film and television, in truth, there is no better place to produce it than in Georgia. We have the world's greatest crews. We have a commitment to making film and television production here. And we have a commitment to educating workforce, as evidenced by the Georgia Film Academy. Jeffrey Stepikoff, the executive director of the Georgia Film Academy, discussing their free new program called the COVID Compliance Course. Rosa Parks became a hero of the civil rights era after refusing to give up her seat on a bus to a white male passenger. Behind the movement 
is a film made in 2018 that explores the days after Park's arrest and the immediate impact of her action. Isaiah Washington portrayed union organizer and civil rights leader E.D. Nixon and Meta Golding played the role of Rosa Parks. I spoke with them in studio when they were in Atlanta promoting the movie. Here, Meta Golding talks about the challenges of portraying a legend. At first, it was really daunting because she is such an icon. Uh, But then as I entered into my research with her, I really tried to take it from a perspective of a regular woman living in the 50s. She was a seamstress. She was what I didn't know, and I don't think a lot of people knew, is that by the time she refused to give up her seat, she was a seasoned activist. So it was very interesting to put myself in that time. Her grandparents were born slaves. So that was very much, and she was raised by her her mother, but also her grandparents. Slavery was very much something that they talked about. Her grandfather was an activist himself. So it was interesting to learn her perspective and to also feel what it felt like to be in the segregated South in the 50s. And also, I think that Mrs. Parks, she was very courageous. She was kind of raised to be an activist, but she was also a woman who was had a very strong faith and garnered or always says that she got her courage from her faith. Mm. And so uh, to walk in that. And that was certainly something that, you know, was common throughout the movement. I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King, Andy Young, I mean, these were people strongly rooted in faith, in the Bible, in the true meaning of the Judeo-Christian tradition and care for humanity. I say, what discoveries did you make about E.D. Nixon? The fact that I didn't know that he existed. Aha! I had no idea that he was as prominent as he was, and uh, I had been uh, trying to desegregate many things in Montgomery, Alabama, which is a very difficult thing to do considering it's the the cradle of the Confederacy. Yeah. Uh, This man had a lot of courage, and apparently had been after uh, changing laws and trying to get the <laughs> marching. I think like seventy-five people to the court to get their right to vote. This was back in the forties. Um, so going on this wonderful journey, just learning about how much he contributed to just Montgomery, Alabama, long before the bus boycott. This man had been actively with A. Philip Randolph, a good friend of his, very powerful. But what I was able to really, uh, you know, glean from all of it is that he was separate from the mercantile system there. He didn't have to rely on his living. He didn't have to rely on that city. He mm-hmm. was working successfully with the George Pullman Company. He was a part of asset of the first president creating the, uh, the Brotherhood Sleeping Porters Union. Which was a a big tremendous achievement itself. Right. So everyone really, you know, attribute their uh, contributions to that industry as creating the first black middle class. But he was also an outsider, as he said. He was an outsider in many ways. And I think my theory is because once he had access to travel outside of Montgomery, he was able to see 
all the things that could possibly be changed. Indeed. And, and have changed around the country. And he was pretty steadfast in making sure things were going to change in Montgomery. Isaiah Washington portrays E.D. Nixon and Meta Golding plays Rosa Parks in the TV One original movie Behind the Movement. I highly recommend viewing this film. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray. This is City Lights on 90.1 WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Imagine being responsible for an accidental murder. Would you call the police? Run away? In the thriller Blood on Her Name, the character Lee Tiller decides to dispose of the body, and things go downhill from there. The movie was filmed in Georgia, and earlier this year, I spoke with director Matthew Pope, along with Atlanta-based actor Bethany Ann Lind, who plays Lee. Here, Bethany talks about her first lead role in a film. It's been a big transition for me. I felt like my theater training actually with this film was a big help, kind of for the first time in my screen career, because I had played leads on stage before. I'd never played a lead in a film or even a TV show. And so I remember talking to Matt and Don, his writing partner and our producer, about just knowing, like, I know I know how to carry a play on stage live. I don't know what the process is going to be like doing it on film out of sequence. and But I feel like the knowledge of carrying a character, an arc, and a story all the way through helped this time around <laughs> with, with being able to see the whole picture and at least in my mind having a map of where I wanted her to go. Matt, why did you want to situate this story in a rural area? There are probably a few reasons, some of them more practical than others. I think the themes in the film and, and some of the aspects of the disconnectedness that the characters feel, the sort of loneliness is um, is something that felt at home for me in a more rural environment. We always talked about the film taking place um, not in a city, not in a town, but almost in the space between the towns. And it was important in our locations and everything else that we were doing that you really felt that sense of not having a lot of social structure around. Um, and I think there's a lot you know, that comes from that dynamic of not having the traditional structures that might provide some sort of guidance, some sort of assistance in situations like this. So from that standpoint, it always felt like a story that would resonate somewhat in that environment. Mm -hmm. Practically, we knew that we were going to be making a smaller budget film that we wanted to try to work with what we had available to us as we were developing it and writing it. That was something that made it make sense from a practical standpoint as well. In the film, the accidental killing of a man at her garage shop, Lee, your character, Bethany, mm -hmm. decides to return his body to the family. 
why that instead of burying him or <laughs> getting rid of the body? I think, well, first of all, because that would be the end of the movie, and that's no fun. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's also, I mean, the thing I love about the film and this character is she's just kind of a regular, decent human being. This thing happens, which is an accident. It's a conglomeration of bad choices made by other people, bad choices made by her. And this thing happens. What? So what am I going to do now? Am I going to... Am I going to dump it somewhere or am I going to try to make it right in some strange, twisted way? And for her, you know, that's her answer. Lee's father is the town sheriff, and their relationship is fraught, to say the least. (laughs) What can you tell us about the dynamic between them? There's definitely a complicated relationship there, and you you gather from early on that there's tension and that that they've got a lot of distance between them. I think that's part of what was fun about exploring the story was working out sort of the the echoes of why that is Mm -hmm. and how that influences some of the choices that Lee's making. I think for Richard, Lee's father in the film, as well as really all of the characters, there's a, a desire to protect the people that they love. And they're each going about that in different ways. And they're, they each kind of have different lines they're willing to cross or not cross in doing that. But I think each of them, it was important for us writing it to feel like that was a consistent theme. Bethany, you and Will Patton, who plays the role of Richard, mm-hmm. your father, have really intense scenes <laughs> whenever you appear together. Yeah. Would you and Matt talk about achieving that level of intensity? Can you pull back the curtain for us, Matt? (laughs) How do you get that tension out of two actors? Well, if you're me, you just let them do what they're going to (laughs) do. It it really wills a, a lovely person and was lovely to work with. He has a real desire to find the grounded sort of reality in what he's doing and to feel like the things the character's doing and saying make sense to him. He came in uh, a few weeks into our production, so we had been shooting for a little while, and he came in, I think, kind of probably a little bit, if I'm speculating some, not sure what he was getting into on a smaller film like this, and, you know, is he going to regret it? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the, the very first day that he was on set. We were shooting one of those more intense scenes that you're talking about. Uh, it's the scene where Lee and Richard are arguing in Lee's carport. And so we spent a, a lot of time, more more than we normally would have, just blocking the scene, rehearsing it, trying to get a sense of it because it was really important from that first scene on that we establish who they were in relationship to each other, what kind of dynamic they had. Yeah, that was what was really fun about it is we trusted that Matt had the eye of, you know, where where this whole big picture is going. And I remember we, we rehearsed that scene, and then I think you left for a while. And we, Will and I, just ran it and ran it and ran it. And a lot of actors have a million different processes, and you never know if yours is going to match what somebody else's is. <laughs> um, and, and he and I did have different processes to a degree, but he comes from theater also, actually, and he wanted to just rehearse it, and he kept saying, are you are you okay? You don't, are, do you want to stop, you know, doing it? And I was like, no, let's keep doing it, because it gave, it gave us that sense of, like, 
A, we, we didn't have to worry about the words anymore. We knew those. But we just were able to fine-tune all the little things that we wanted to explore while we were running it. And then we had the opportunity to do lots of takes, too. Which you don't have live on stage. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. Lee keeps making terrible mistakes <laughs> that lead to further unraveling of the situation. Do you think her moral compass is stronger than what we're accustomed to seeing in other thrillers? Yeah, I think so. I think that's mm. part of why we were interested in telling the story this way. As Bethany was saying earlier, you know, we're not all Dexter. We're not serial killers that can easily just, you know, move past our moral qualms about something and and move on. And I think it was something that felt very grounded and interesting in, in saying, okay, well, if you find yourself in this situation, but you can't just dispose of the body and move on with your life and, and be okay with it, then what? In one scene, the girlfriend of the deceased man is asked why she hasn't called the police yet. And her response is, the police don't care. He's just another junkie to them. Why did you want to focus on struggling working class people? Some of it goes back to that same sense of alienation and, and sort of being alone, not having anywhere to turn. Uh, hopelessness. Uh, yeah, the hopelessness. We see a series of flashbacks slowly reveal how we get to the murder. Would you discuss the role of flashbacks in this story? One thing that we actually made a decision on really early, and I say we, I'm, I'm talking about Don Thompson, who's my writing partner and, and the producer on the film. Very early on, we decided not to use flashbacks to actually show what happened in the incident itself, um, which would have been pretty standard, pretty typical way to tell the story. We thought it was a lot more interesting to never fully show the lead up to it and to force the audience to kind of be in that constantly evaluating, reevaluating position of what do I know? What do I think? Do I feel like she was justified in what happened or, or not? What we did use the flashbacks for was to try to give a bit of a view into where Lee is coming from in all this and what causes her perhaps to make some of the decisions that she's making and to explain some of what might be going on inside with her. I think we found that to be a, an interesting use that, you know, give us a little bit more because she doesn't have many people to talk to through the mm -hmm. film. Um, <laughs> you know, Bethany's in every scene in the film, but a lot of it, it's Lee on her own doing things that don't enable her to talk to other characters. And when she does, she's often lying to them and, and not able to fully really talk about why any of this may have happened. So the flashbacks were kind of a way to get into her psyche a little bit and understand some of maybe what's motivating her in, in some of these decisions that, as you said, are, are not, not always helpful decisions for her. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very effective flashback when we see Lee driving and looking in the rearview mirror and her younger self is in the back seat. Mm -hmm. The film is billed as neo-noir. How do you define that? Neo-noir is, I, I think, a bit of a catch-all to say noir, but 
knew that we didn't make this film in in the 50s. I think the noir elements um, come from the the sense of guilt and right and wrong and punishment and sin and death and and some of that, you know, it trades very much in some of the Southern Gothic realm as well. All that morality that's kind of baked into it, the questions about the morality and what these characters are doing and not doing. I think that combined with some of just the mood and the and the the way that we chose to to light it and to to do some of that is is what they're getting at when it comes to the labels and things those don't come from us you know <laughs> other people tell us what what kind of movie it is we just we just made a movie and, and tried to uh make it a an engaging story neo noir was not what you set out to do no it wasn't not what we set out. We just didn't really <laughs> set out to say, this is how we would position from a marketing standpoint this film. Bethany, you are the mother of two darling children <laughs> who are avid WABE listeners. They certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, this is a mother's story. Yeah. Were you channeling your maternal self in playing Lee? There's no way to disconnect the motherly instinct that you just get when you become a mother. Not saying that someone who isn't a mother couldn't figure that out either. But yeah, my kids were, I think they were one and three when we made the film. And my son in the film is, is he 14? Yeah. Yeah. But as you discover what the son is going through during the film, which is not something that I have experienced yet, <laughs> yet, hopefully won't ever, but understanding that mothers will do what they have to do for their children. And I, and I also love that I haven't seen a mom like this on screen before, a mom who has to go to these lengths. Acclaimed Atlanta-based actor Bethany Ann Lind and director Matthew Pope discussing the film Blood on Her Name. It can be streamed on Amazon Prime and Tubi. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back with a new show Monday at 11 a.m. Our theme music is The First Time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.